Chapter Two of Matilda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. Matilda by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Chapter Two. I now come to my own story. During the early part of my life there is little to relate, and I will be brief, but I must be allowed to dwell a little on the years of my childhood, that it may be apparent how, when one hope failed, all life was to be a blank, and how, when the only affection I was permitted to cherish was blasted, my existence was extinguished with it. I have said that my aunt was very unlike my father. I believe that, without the slightest tinge of a bad heart, she had the coldest that ever filled a human breast. It was totally incapable of any affection. She took me under her protection because she considered it her duty, but she had too long lived alone and undisturbed by the noise and prattle of children, to allow that I should disturb her quiet. She had never been married and for the last five years had lived, perfectly alone, on an estate that had descended to her through her mother, on the shores of Loch Lomond in Scotland. My father had expressed a wish in his letters that she should reside with me at his family mansion, which was situated in a beautiful country near Richmond in Yorkshire. She would not consent to this proposition, but as soon as she had arranged the affairs which her brother's departure had caused to fall to her care, she quitted England, and took me with her to her Scotch estate. The care of me while a baby, and afterwards, till I had reached my eighth year, devolved on a servant of my mother's, who had accompanied us in our retirement for that purpose. I was placed in a remote part of the house, and only saw my aunt at stated hours. These occurred twice a day. Once, about noon, she came to my nursery, and once, after her dinner, I was taken to her. She never caressed me, and seemed all the time I stayed in the room to fear that I should annoy her by some childish freak. My good nurse always schooled me with the greatest care before she ventured into the parlour, and the awe my aunt's cold looks and few constrained words inspired was so great that I seldom disgraced her lessons, or was betrayed from the exemplary stillness which I was taught to observe during these short visits. Under my good nurse's care I ran wild about our park and the neighbouring fields. The offspring of the deepest love, I displayed from my earliest years the greatest sensibility of disposition. I cannot say with what passion I loved every thing, even the inanimate objects that surrounded me. I believe that I bore an individual attachment to every tree in our park. Every animal that inhabited it knew me, and I loved them. Their occasional deaths filled my infant heart with anguish. I cannot number the birds that I have saved during the long and severe winters of that climate, or the hares and rabbits that I have defended from the attacks of our dogs, or have nursed when accidentally wounded. When I was seven years of age, my nurse left me. I now forget the cause of her departure, if indeed I ever knew it. She returned to England, and the bitter tears she shed at parting 
were the last I saw flow for love of me for many years. My grief was terrible. I had no friend but her in the whole world. By degrees I became reconciled to solitude, but no one supplied her place in my affections. I lived in a desolate country where there were none to praise, and very few to love. It is true that I now saw a little more of my aunt, but she was in every way an unsocial being, and to a timid child she was as a plant beneath a thick covering of ice. I should cut my hands in endeavouring to get at it. So I was entirely thrown upon my own resources. The neighbouring minister was engaged to give me lessons in reading, writing, and French, but he was without family, and his manners, even to me, were always perfectly characteristic of the profession in the exercise of whose functions he chiefly shone, that of a schoolmaster. I sometimes strove to form friendships with the most attractive of the girls who inhabited the neighbouring village, but I believe I should never have succeeded, even had not my aunt interposed her authority, to prevent all intercourse between me and the peasantry, for she was fearful lest I should acquire the Scotch accent and dialect. A little of it I had, although great pains was taken that my tongue should not disgrace my English origin. As I grew older, my liberty increased with my desires, and my wanderings extended from our park to the neighbouring country. Our house was situated on the shores of the lake, and the lawn came down to the water's edge. I rambled amidst the wild scenery of this lovely country, and became a complete mountaineer. I passed hours on the steep brow of a mountain that overhung a waterfall, or rowed myself in a little skiff to some one of the islands. I wandered for ever about these lovely solitudes, gathering flower after flower, and era pinta tuta la mia via, singing as I might the wild melodies of the country, or occupied by pleasant daydreams. My greatest pleasure was the enjoyment of a serene sky amidst these verdant woods, yet I loved all the changes of nature, and rain, and storm, and the beautiful clouds of heaven brought their delights with them. When rocked by the waves of the lake, my spirits rose in triumph, as a horseman feels with pride the motions of his high-fed steed. But my pleasures arose from the contemplation of nature alone. I had no companion. My warm affections, finding no return from any other human heart, were forced to run waste on inanimate objects. Sometimes, indeed, I wept, when my aunt received my caresses with repulsive coldness, and when I looked round and found none to love, but I quickly dried my tears. As I grew older, books in some degree supplied the place of human intercourse. The library of my aunt was very small. Shakespeare, Milton, Pope, and Cowper were the strangely assorted poets of her collection, and among the prose authors, a translation of Livy and Rollins' ancient history, were my chief favourites, although, as I emerged from childhood, I found others highly interesting, which I had before neglected as dull. When I was twelve years old, it occurred to my aunt that I ought to learn music. She herself played upon the harp. It was with great hesitation that she persuaded herself to undertake my instruction, yet believing this accomplishment a necessary part of my education, 
and balancing the evils of this measure, or of having someone in the house to instruct me, she submitted to the inconvenience. A harp was sent for, that my playing might not interfere with hers, and I began. She found me a docile, and when I had conquered the first rudiments, a very apt scholar. I had acquired in my harp a companion in rainy days, a sweet soother of my feelings, when any untoward accident ruffled them. I often addressed it as my only friend. I could pour forth to it my hopes and loves, and I fancied that its sweet accents answered me. I have now mentioned all my studies. I was a solitary being, and for my infant years, ever since my dear nurse left me, I had been a dreamer. I brought Rosalind and Miranda, and the Lady of Commerce to life to be my companions, or on my isle acted over their parts, imagining myself to be in their situations. Then I wandered from the fancies of others, and formed affections and intimacies with the aerial creations of my own brain. But still clinging to reality, I gave a name to these conceptions, and nursed them in the hope of realization. I clung to the memory of my parents. My mother I should never see. She was dead. But the idea of my unhappy, wandering father was the idol of my imagination. I bestowed on him all my affections. There was a miniature of him that I gazed on continually. I copied his last letter, and read it again and again. Sometimes it made me weep and at other times I repeated with transport those words, One day I may claim her at your hands. I was to be his consoler, his companion in after years. My favourite vision was that when I grew up I would leave my aunt, whose coldness lulled my conscience, and disguised like a boy I would seek my father through the world. My imagination hung upon the scene of recognition, his miniature, which I should continually wear exposed on my breast, would be the means, and I imagined the moment to my mind a thousand and a thousand times, perpetually varying the circumstances. Sometimes it would be in a desert, in a populous city, at ball, we should perhaps meet in a vessel, and his first words constantly were, My daughter, I love thee. What ecstatic moments have I passed in these dreams! How many tears have I shed! How often have I laughed aloud! This was my life for sixteen years. At fourteen and fifteen I often thought that the time was come when I should commence my pilgrimage, which I had cheated my own mind into believing was my imperious duty, but a reluctance to quit my aunt, a remorse for the grief which, I could not conceal from myself, I should occasion her, for ever withheld me. Sometimes, when I had planned the next morning for my escape, a word of more than usual affection from her lips made me postpone my resolution. I reproached myself bitterly for what I called a culpable weakness, but this weakness returned upon me whenever the critical moment approached, and I never found courage to depart. End of chapter 2